I think it's being honest to other people and being curious. Because when you're curious, you will find something what's your passion. And for me, that's really something nice. What I have achieved with Evolutic, basically, my I did the PhD out of passion for that subject, and now. Out of passion for the subject, I'm we are creating an investment management firm out of it, which is something really great if you can follow your passion because then it doesn't feel like working. I want to mention that today's podcast episode is brought to you by the Eurex Exchange, which of course is the home of the European yield curve. Hi, this is Oliver Steinke, CEO and founder of Evolutic, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. And the process, regardless of what underlying it is, yeah. It's, the, it's the same, uh, yeah. so to speak. Okay. Yeah. So we always have the same um, um, investment process. So in step one, we uh, have the ensemble uh, generation. So we generate a lot of levy process-based market models. And mm -hmm. step two is always independent of the underlying the ensemble pooling. So basically kicking out the bad ones. Okay. Step three is the integration. Those which are left over, how do you uh, combine them to get one specific signal sure. then we come to the element of portfolio construction step number four um, where we can discuss uh, a bit later in detail how we do it because i think we have uh, quite a unique approach there as well mm -hmm. and then the last step is the implementation which for us is fully automatic but that's just a technical detail because we trade um, we, we will trade sh uh, shortly more than 20 underlyings in a lot of different markets, so it, it just gets uh, much more error-prone if you would do all this manually. Sure, of course. And speaking of the expanded portfolio, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, is that going to be fully diversified, meaning financial markets and commodities? Uh, yeah. Okay. And do you have a view in, I mean, just our curiosity, um, Is are there some types of market, meaning commodities versus financials, mm -hmm. that seem to have more stable or better predictions or um yes of course we have um different um success so in the back test for example silver was much better than uh, gold um okay. but we would not just trade silver because the the beauty of our uh, unique approach is that gold was not very strong but it still made something like 10 percent over four or five years which is yeah not great but still a good portfolio diversifier. Tell me more about, I mean, uh, unless you feel you've, yeah. you've explained enough about yeah. the, the trading strategy itself, but uh, but feel free to to, uh, to to describe more. I have another question as we uh, uh, sort of ramp up about the model itself, yeah. but but is there anything else you want to add you feel is important uh, that, that may be one of your USPs in, in terms of the, the model itself? I think the model uh, itself is really this combination of two relatively unique approaches. So first using levy processes, which come out of the, you know, in quant finance, you, you often have the split between the uh, P and the Q world. So the Q world are the 
guys with the risk-neutral derivatives pricing, which right. usually do not forecast. And then you have the P world, uh, where you have the guys who do forecasting. Basically, what we have uh, done as a transfer is using techniques from the uh, from the derivatives pricing world and bring them into the forecasting world. Mm-hmm. So. This is one transfer or one USP of our strategy. And then the second one is applying these ensemble methods. And I believe there are also other guys who do combine a lot of different models, but really doing it in such a depth with the three different steps. Um, I think we are we are quite okay on that one. So, yeah. And then the next step, which I think makes us um, a bit unique is the portfolio construction process. Because after we come up now on a given underlying, we come up with something like, okay, we go along. We have a very unique allocation process. So let's say you would have a $1 million portfolio and you trade 10 underlyings. A lot of people would just um, put 100,000, basically 10 buckets of 100,000 and then underlying A, you trade with 100,000, underlying B, you trade with 100,000 and so on. What we do, we start like that, but then we do uh, two more steps. The first one is what we call volatility equalizing. So let's say uh, for uh, your target uh, volatility would be 10%. And then you have something like the DAX, which has, let's say roughly 20% annualized volatility. And for that, we would half the exposure to DAX. So instead of trading 100,000, we would only trade 50,000. Whereas for something like the Aussie dollar yen, which has something like 5% annualized volatility, we would actually double it. So trading 200,000 notional. Because what we want to achieve is 10 equal risk buckets, not 10 equal notional buckets. And then in in the next step, we also tilt the weightings based on the Sortino ratio. So as you realize, Sortino keeps on popping up all the time. (laughs) But... um, yeah, so we would overweight then after after doing this risk uh, equalizing or volatility equalizing, as we call it, we would then come up with something what we call Sortino optimization, where we um, uh, do exactly the same process as before. Let's say uh, our overall strategy is 1.5 um, target Sortino. If we would then have a, um, a strategy which had a, a Sortino of two over the last one year period, this strategy would be slightly overrated. A strategy which had only, let's say, a Sartino ratio of one over the last um, one year would then slightly be underweighted. Now, I wanted to ask you sort of a, a, a general question. I mean, if you if you think back of the um, CTA industry, and I don't know exactly when you started following it, but what happened really uh, a number of years ago was it, it came from being a very U.S.-dominated uh, industry. A lot of large, well-known mm-hmm. firms um, had been around for, you know, 20-plus yeah. years, and, and a lot of the assets were there. Then comes along um, in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, a number of, um, I think, perhaps more scientific European managers and, and the investor base seem to really like that approach and a lot of the assets really shifted and of course in today's world we know that many of the powerhouses in 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 this industry uh, really uh, resides in in europe at this stage um you know not necessarily because performance has been better but investors seems to have 
uh, warmed up to this approach. Now, are you sometimes afraid that these very scientific terms that you use and, and, and that you describe your systems with may scare certain investors, unlike me, you know, I'm, I'm happy to admit if I don't understand yeah. it and, and so on and so forth. But of course, as you know, anything that we don't understand, we are more likely to say no thank you to. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and trust me when I say that even basic trend following um, is sometimes very hard for many yeah. people to to appreciate. So I can only imagine what it's like describing what what you guys are doing. Um, have you have you thought about that from a sort of purely maybe a marketing angle or yeah. or um, when when you? Yeah, I think actually we we uh, it, it is definitely a difficulty for us because. On the one hand, we, we, we do something which is very complex. Uh, being honest, it took me one year to understand levy processes yeah. fully in my during my doctoral studies. So I know they are very complex uh, distributions. Um, on If you would have a five-year track record, basically we would, uh, you know, we could um, uh, show the track record and say we have a proprietary algorithm, that's it. But now we are not at the stage. So now we really have to try to convince people based on the academic arguments. And that's why the investors we can convince now at this early stage, they tend to be very well educated in this financial uh, theory. Of course, they don't have to know everything about ensemble methods. They're relatively recent development or relatively recent. They gain a lot of popularity and also the levy processes. But you really need to know uh, quite a bit about all this theoretical or academic background in order to fully understand what we are doing. But we want to be super transparent, really lay down and uh, disclose, okay, that's how we do it. So that someone who approaches us from the academic side, because right now we don't have a a very uh, long track record, can understand, okay, what are these guys doing and how is it different to other CTAs? Oliver, if you just take a step back and we think about, you know, simplicity versus complexity, for example, uh, the history of CTAs, I would say, probably comes from the world of simplicity. um, And many people have argued over the years and decades that using simple methods in the long run are more robust. You mentioned uh, Harry Markovich, uh, obviously coming up with uh, some important theories that uh, you know, took it uh, a little bit more uh, in the complex direction uh, in terms of asset allocation. But actually, I believe that in a later interview, um, he admitted when it came came to his own finances and how he would allocate his own money, he would use the simple method. I take, you know, if it's 10% in each bucket, <laughs> I, that's how I do it. So oh. how, how do you, just I'm really interested in this, how do you as a person view simplicity versus complexity now i do understand you have you your own product is complex and and because you have maybe uh seen it for a while it may may not seem so complex to you but in general as a philosophy do you believe that complex complex processes or complexity is stronger more robust than simple stuff I think it's a difficult answer to uh, to to give here because I think you can see it from both sides. I okay. uh, I also uh, strongly believe in the concept of Occam's razor, so you should always 
aim for the simple simple solution to solve a given problem. But if you have a very complex problem, you you might not have a one simple answer. That's why we, we try to keep it as simple as possible, but that's the simple solution we have come up with. Of course, it's still very complex, but um, yeah, basically that's our approach to it. If it's if it's right or wrong, we can probably uh, have another chat in five years and then we, 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 we will see uh, if it was uh, good or if something uh, very simple would have been um, much better. Sure. But but and, and just as a last question on this topic, because I, I do think it's really interesting, uh, in, in your design, you're obviously dealing with complex uh, yeah. issues and, 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 and you're using complex processes, but in this actual design, Are you trying to simplify some of this in, in the in the way you apply it? Or do you just come up with the algorithms that actually just handles everything, even though it's a bit complex, but you can you can program it so it deals with it? Do you strive for simplifying it or do you just say, you know, happy to take all the complexity on? No, we, we, we really try to simplify it as much as possible. But for example, uh, coming back to the uh, question of portfolio construction, Yeah, we could allocate just 10% to each bucket. Mm. But I really believe that this is not the correct approach if you want to have equal risk buckets. Because it just not, uh, for me, it's counterintuitive to have 100,000 in an underlying which moves 50% a year, like a VIX. Sure. And the same amount in um, something like Aussie dollar yen, which moves 5% a year. Sure. So... We, we always try for simplicity. We don't want to make it super complex, but we also want to still be precise and doing what we believe is right. Sure. No, no, absolutely. And yeah. I think most people nowadays realize that you do need to volatility adjust your positions uh, to have a chance of, of not uh, shooting yourself in the foot, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you run the system every day. Now your new forecast will come along and it will give you, uh, you know, um, tell you what to do in terms of uh, uh, position uh, positions. But what about intra forecast, so to speak, the 23 hours and 59 minutes that goes in between uh, the two forecasts? Do you in any way, shape or form um, have any stop loss or exit that may be triggered before the next forecast, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah, we don't enter any position without a stop uh, attached trailing stop. So it's uh, directly from the start when we enter the position, we have always a trailing stop attached. Um, but we do not have take profit orders. So we stay in a position long until the signal changes to short. Absolutely. And in, I'm just curious in terms of sort of the um, the the you know, the model itself as you've implemented. Yeah. For how long has it been like this in your research, so to speak? Um, uh, has it been fixed more or less for 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 a few months or for a year or so? Uh, meaning, are you constantly making changes to it, even as we go along, or is it just now a matter of having more markets? But essentially, the model itself has been stable for a while. Yeah, the model has been very stable for a while, um, and it's more a question of now adding more markets. Let's uh, shift gear then to uh, uh, another important uh, topic, I think, and that is risk management. We touched upon it a little bit, but 
I would love to to ask you just how you uh, how do you define risk uh, in general? What 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 is the risk matrix that or risk yeah frameworks that you look at? Uh, what we look at is downside volatility and maximum drawdown mm-hmm. uh, and maximum daily loss. Okay, um, because we are still relatively small and only trade liquid uh, markets. We believe that by always attaching a stop loss, we we can to a certain degree, limit the downside risk in any given day. Sure. What what kind of targets are they and how do you actually try and achieve them or be within them, so to speak, in practical terms? So what we um, have, the the question is, okay, you, you enter a position in a given underlying and then the question is, where do you put your stop loss? Right. Do you do you put it 2% below or do you put it 10% below? If you, if you put it 2% below, you have the problem that you might be stopped out quite often where over the long run your prediction was maybe even correct but you have been stopped out if you if you put it at 10% below you you won't be executed that often but when you're executed you really lost a lot of money already sure. so um here we 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 try to strike a balance because we target this 10% um Return. Annualized uh, uh, re- return. Mm-hmm. Why do we do that? Because that's what we, in order to build a track record, we believe that that's the kind of kind of style of volatility and return what most institutional investors would like to see, somewhere around ten to twelve percent uh, annual return and six, seven, eight percent uh, of volatility. Mm-hmm. Because our concept is very flexible, we we also have some clients that say. No, I, I can I can stand much higher volatility. So for us, it's very easy to offer um, the double or half of it. it mm-hmm. It's really very easy for us to customize it to any uh, desired risk return profile um, a client would want to have. So we have this target Satino ratio, but if it's 7% volatility with 10% return or 2% volatility with 3.5% uh, return or if it's 20% return with roughly 15% uh, volatility, that's what the, the client has to tell us. It's the same with underlyings. There might be a client who has, because of uh, some constraint, he would not want to trade commodities, for example. It's very easy for us to just trade all the other markets for him. Sure. Sure. So it's, it's a very customizable uh, strategy we have to offer, in my opinion. And the stop loss, is that uh, the same regardless of what kind of market you trade? No, no. It's a function of uh, the volatility mm-hmm. and um, our maximum daily loss uh, is below 1%. We do not want to lose uh, more than 1% a day. So that's the maximum constraint we have. And um, we also, it's automatically the distance is updated based on the last year uh, return. Right. So we, we constantly check, okay, if um, over the last year on VIX, the um, ideal return would have been X percent uh, with a stop loss of X percent below, sure. that's, that's how we update the stop loss distance. Okay. Now, tell me a little bit about correlation. I mean, you're obviously trading in a somewhat, you could say it's a short-term strategy because it could change every 24 hours, essentially. Um, how does market correlations play into the portfolio, if at all? Uh, meaning, is it more the model correlation that's relevant or is it perhaps still the market correlation that that um, needs, a, needs more attention? 
So we, we have done some backtest uh, correlation matrix, which is quite um, positive in my opinion, because we have like a correlation of minus 0 0.03 with MSCI World, for example, minus 0 0.2 with a new HCTA index. So we are really uncorrelated because we have long and short positions on a lot of different uh, underlyings. So for example, <clears throat> uh, let's say we would only trade gold and there's also another guy who trades uh, gold or you take gold as a benchmark itself. We don't necessarily have to be highly correlated because when we are long, because we can be long, short and neutral, you know, we have basically three possible outcomes compared to, okay, we are just long gold. Absolutely. Now, of course, with returns comes drawdowns and uh, they they are some affect us differently, so to speak. And, and, and I appreciate, again, that the track record may be not so long, but you've done a lot of yeah. testing, so you probably yeah. have uh, some expectations. Now, just remind me what your expectation in terms of your worst drawdown would be, for example. And also, what are your thoughts about if you get to that level and maybe go beyond that how do you frame what how do you frame that uh, and i know this might be a little bit difficult to answer because you're not quite there yet uh, um, but but it's something that is so important because i think one of the strengths of some of the managers who have been around for 20 30 40 years is the fact that they have gone through a, a lot of drawdowns and they have survived them so so uh, it, it is a very important part of uh, of what what we do as managers so tell me a little bit about what your expectations are and and how you um how you want to deal with it if you get to that level yeah so um we have in the back test we only had a maximum drawdown of five percent but i think long term what i would uh, consider um, an attractive strategy is when the maximum drawdown in percent is uh, equal or lower than the annualized uh, return. Sure. So for us, we target 10% annualized return. If we would stay in terms of max, maximum drawdown uh, below 10% over the long run, I would be happy. Sure. Um, what we would do, um, if we would ever get there, already when we come to 75% of that, we, um, I mean, we are constantly checking our models, checking the assumptions. Uh, could there be any tweak relative to the backtest? Uh, what we have uh, not taken into consideration so far, we haven't found any any kind of mistake or error. But um, yeah, it's the big question. I think you you're aiming for is or the answer to that question is uh, when do you stop trading? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two questions that one is when you stop trading. I think that definitely is an interesting question. The other thing that I, I, I personally think is, is an interesting question is that when you use these uh, complex systems, how do you know if a model has stopped working? Yeah, I mean, we have to a certain degree, we have some semi-automatic uh, approach to that because we have this Sotino weighting, what I told you uh, sure. about earlier. So um, a strategy which is not working well will have a, a very uh, a pretty low Sotino ratio over the right. last year and therefore we will would underweight it automatically and those strategies which are working well uh, would have a high Sotino ratio and therefore be overweighted. 
That is true, but I, I, I will challenge you a little bit on this, yeah. even though you, you're the one with the PhD, so I need to be <laughs> careful here. Um, but, you know, one thing is to underweight things that may not have worked. But the yeah. fact that you're picking something that has worked, it could be just at the time when it stops working. And therefore, you end up first uh, disallowing something that may start working, and then you start, you know, you keep on investing through a model that stops working. So this is the compound of false signals, so to speak, if we can yeah. call it that. So there is this, this is the challenge. And, and sometimes when you just have a simple or simpler uh, model where you can see oh. each trade and you can see everything that goes on, sometimes it can be quite easy to say, well, actually, there's something that's not quite right here and I need to reinvestigate that once you get into artificial intelligence and predictions and so on and so forth mm. i guess to, at least in my mind it becomes perhaps a little bit harder to find the root cause of a potential underperformance period uh, but but i'm i'm sure you have uh, ways of 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 dealing with that but uh, that's just my own sort of um, simpler observation i guess no, no, I, I agree with you. The more complex the strategy, the more difficult it is to, to come to some form of, let's call it, performance attribution. Mm. But in the end, it's like you want to know what have been the, the non-performing uh, underlyings. That's yeah. still pretty easy uh, on a portfolio level. Sure. Then you want to know, okay, for those underlyings where your, uh, where your performance has been weak over the um, recent uh, time period, why has it been like that? Absolutely. So that, that is the question because we, we have roughly uh, a bit more than 1 million models per underlying, which then lead to the forecast. Yeah. But we, we store the PL of each of those 1, uh, 1 million models. Yeah. So over, over time. So we, um, we have a huge database, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, uh, we can really go. Uh, into the into the details and really pick okay what is going on here because as with each as with every statistical learning approach if you have a total regime shift mm. uh, and you will have some period of adjustment until the auto learning works again you you can have and you will have periods where you basically um, yeah your models are not working it just the art is to still not I mean, you cannot work, but it has to be limited, sure. and you have to you, you have to make it until the time that when they work again. Yeah. Speaking of regime changes, um, in my mind, you could say that there has been a little bit of a regime change uh, recently, meaning that after two thousand and eight, nine, so to speak, uh, a lot of central banks decided that they were going to work together. Um, and have a very um, coordinated approach um, that clearly uh, meant that um, you know convergent risk taking became in favor. Uh, the world was reasonably stable uh, in some respect, and um, the other types of strategies where the CTAs are usually, namely in the divergent part of the risk taking specter, uh, were struggling. Uh, last year, the central banks decided to uh, stop coordinating their policies completely. In the US, they didn't want to continue the QE. Japan decided to accelerate QE and Europe said, well, maybe we will do QE. QE. And mm -hmm. of course, we know now that they started doing it. So in many ways, from my point of view, the world has become much more divergent than it was uh, only 
uh, a year or so ago. Now, yeah. to me, that's a little bit of a regime, regime change. And I wanted to ask you, in your research and, and, your, and your test, um, what, what's been your experience in the period 2007 through 2014? Could, could you see these things happening in the, in the performance data uh, as well? It's actually it's a very good question, and Peter and I we we, we discussed it on Friday. Okay. Because it, it, the the question is for me the definition of a regime shift. Right. Um, and uh, especially in rates, as you mentioned uh, correctly, the the central bank intervention in the financial markets since two thousand eight basically has led to record low uh, yields on on fixed income instruments and. Yeah. You have basically it's it's a range bound process because the okay now here in Switzerland we we have some rates even negatively in Germany, the Scandinavian countries um, we 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 see countries with negative rates but it's still limited. There, I wouldn't expect like a negative ten percent uh, rate that, of that would hurt. Yeah, that would really hurt. Um, but it's very. Um, Difficult for me, or I find it a very difficult question, and I don't have uh, the answer how to how to um, predict a regime shift or even to recognize one. Sure. Because for me, a regime shift is okay. Something changes, but you would have to define and to be very accurate from an empirical uh, point of view. You would have to define beforehand. Okay, if that and that happens, that's what we would consider a regime shift. How long do you go back in your back test? How long do you test the the, the model back? Early two eight. Ah, okay. So you, okay, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you're really dealing with that period that uh, everyone yeah. felt, um, you know, both the, yeah. on the upside and the downside. Anyway, last question on on risk management, so to speak, yeah. and and it's very simple. Uh, what keeps you up at night? I mean, is there anything when you think about risk, you think about your models, you think about the markets you trade, uh, you think about any other thing that could really disrupt what you do, um, could be an IT issue, I don't know. Um, is there anything that keeps you up at night, uh, Oliver? Um, yeah, of course, because we, we, are, we are a startup, um, the not so great performance over the last month keeps us up and we are constantly challenging ourselves, okay, is it... Uh, for us, it's okay in line with expectations, but how can we improve further? Um, from an IT perspective, we have triple backup, so I'm still pretty, I'm pretty confident. However, um, I still monitor. The, we we monitor the trades all the time, um, although the fix is working without any bug. So it, it it just basically, I think, to be a money manager, you have to be a bit paranoid and constantly worry probably too much. Um, and hopefully over your whole career, you've always worried too much, but nothing happened because that way it's much better than you have the other way around that you are um, overconfident and uh, you spend too much time on the golf course, but then you have some blow up and that's what no one wants to see because people trust you with their money. So it's your responsibility to to do the best what you can 24 seven for it in my sure. opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now let's jump to the sort of the uh, topic, uh, which is also something we've already touched upon, which is research. And I just want to ask you a couple of questions uh, in, in, in this regard. Um, you know, 
first of all, investors, to some degree, uh, they want us to keep innovating and doing research and so on and so forth. But they don't want big changes in the, you know, the the profile of the strategy and, and so on and so forth. When you sit down, you know, the four PhDs, I guess, uh, within your firm and, and you discuss research and, and you have your brainstorming sessions What's the conversation like right now at the moment? What are the topics that you discuss? I think we are quite, we are working in the same direction on our research because we have um, uh, basically the whole strategy is based on the initial idea of my PhD, okay, use ensembles of levy post models. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we've already come uh, yeah, quite a bit of the road to towards um transforming it into a fully automatic systematic strategy. Sure. Because we are still in the research um, portfolio construction uh, is uh, an ongoing process. How can we improve it? The optimization of for Sotino is an ongoing process. The, um, the ensemble method by itself, okay, how do you over or underweight strong performing uh, or weak performing models is a constant um, issue which which market do you add as a next one is a ongoing uh, challenge so we have uh, uh, we have of course we have a lot of different topics where we are challenged and uh, focus our research on now but i think what what we have all in common is this big roadmap okay that's where we want to be and now it's just a question of how do we get there sometimes we turn left and then we realize okay we should have turned right but you know it's nothing that we that we are departing too much from the road to where we want to go. It just, um, we know there are still certain steps to, to, to achieve, for example, until we have all 20 um, underlines traded, but we know how to get there. And now it's a question of basically manpower and research hours uh, to implement it. I wanted to ask, uh, clarify something um, with you, uh, and I'm not even sure if I fully understood that. I mean, Clearly, you're applying some kind of artificial intelligence and, and, yeah. and in, your, in, in, in your machine in terms of uh, learning. But um, how do you... So if, so if part of the improvements is the machine becoming better at learning, if I can yeah. put it that way, how can you... Where can you add value to that learning process in part, you know, as part of your research? Uh, is it more models so that there is an even uh, more votes, if I can yeah. uh, visualize that for people that each yeah. each model has a vote and that's what the uh, the prediction becomes? Is, so is it that in that area that you can add value to machine learning or, or how does it actually work? Yeah, I think uh, exactly as I mentioned, we could extend the number of models, we could extend the different yeah, calibration techniques we apply to them, we could improve our pruning method, so how do we decide which models to kick out. Mm-hmm. We can also improve on the ensemble uh, integration step, so how do we combine those models which are left over. And we can also improve on the portfolio construction point. And once we are a, a bigger firm managing more money, we can also probably um, in the trade implementation, right now we just do a limit order at a certain price and we buy the um, the underlying future. If we would manage a couple of billions, we would probably have to think about 
things like iceberg orders or so on, so that we don't leave a big footprint in the market. Sure. Right now, you know, we are we are very far away from that problem. <laughs> but if you're Winton trading several billions, you will have to take uh, these problems into account. Now, we have the general uh, outline, we have our general investment process. We have come up with procedures for each of these steps, which we consider good. But we are, as we are research guys, we, we believe in constant uh, improvement of the existing processes. Mm. Because in, also for the, for the strategy, you know, it, it might not sound much, but if, if, if you're 56% correct instead of 54, sure. it's a huge difference financially. Yeah. In, in terms of returns. Yeah. yeah, that much I understood from my uh, other conversation. As I mentioned, I, I, I really got the understanding yeah. of, of the importance of this number, which, uh, which is very interesting. Now, when you look at models and, and all the work you've done, I mean, yeah. do you believe that models have a certain lifetime, that there is a decay in models where they just simply stop working? Or yeah, I believe when too many market players are playing according to the same model, then they could stop um, working. Or you, if you have a huge regime shift with totally new drivers of price, for example, the entrance of the central banks is a clear, clearly the entrance of a very big market player with uh, uh, very deep pockets and they clearly had some effect on on the prices uh, where they've been uh, interfering in those markets. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the the, the business side of your company um, moving away from, from the trading and, yeah. the, and the research yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Sort of, obviously, you're a very experienced entrepreneur, as we, we learned earlier on. When you look at the landscape of investors uh, today, who who are you targeting and who are you, um, who do you think will be a well-suited client for the strategy? And it goes both ways, meaning who do you think might be interested in you? But I mean, are you also, uh, and obviously you can't be too critical in the beginning, yeah. it's about getting assets in, right. but um, is that something that's part of your your long-term profile, because I know a very, very successful short-term trading st uh, company uh, based in in in, in Zook, uh, mm -hmm. who were interviewed earlier uh, on the podcast. Um, their CEO clearly described that it was not about that all clients are the right clients, and part yeah. of their learning process was really to say no and and just focus on a smaller number of investors with whom they could really get into the detailed research because it allowed for them to have much longer relationships, even through the bad times. Yeah, I, I, I believe the same. For example, uh, in terms of minimum account size, uh, there has to be some minimum. You cannot uh, first, when you want to trade a diversified portfolio of 20 and alliance, you need to have a certain number of minimum. Uh, you know, you need to put up some margin. So that is one constraint. We also, what we focus on right now are these um, emerging manager investors because we know we don't have a very long track record. Oh. Those investors, they they basically invest based on the academic merits or the originality of your idea. And we believe we have 
we have an interesting idea. And um, we also focus on a couple of wealthy individuals which um, have a certain level of education and, and uh, entrepreneurial success. Therefore, they have a certain uh, uh, type of wealth where they really, you know, it's similar to, com com to comparing it to a startup investment because, you know, yeah, there, there's still ways to improve it and it's early, but also if it goes well, it, it will go very well. Cool. So th this is why we right now we focus on emerging managers and um, wealthy individuals because, for example, if you look at the ideal kind of ticket in terms of uh, asset size would clearly be, let's say, uh, of a big pension fund. Sure. You know, they could they could invest 15 million in one go, but they would have criteria such as, okay, you need to ma manage at least 100 million. Um, our ticket is not allowed to be more than X percent of your total AUM, as we are still very small. For us, it doesn't even, you know, it doesn't make sense to contact this kind of investors. I think it's over the life cycle of an investment management firm. Uh, at each stage, you have different ideal kind of investors. Sure. No, no, absolutely. Uh, tell me, Oliver, what, what's your, when, when you run a strategy like yours, yeah. what, what's your average margin to equity and, and what's sort of the range of margin to equity that you see on a daily basis? Uh, it's between two and seven or eight percent. I would say the average is around four or five percent, something like that. Okay. Well, that leads me to the next question that I have, and that is, yeah. you know, in in a world where you know, uh, in in certainly in your case, you have a, a lot of cash, especially if you. Uh, had a fund and people were investing okay. through a fund, then you would have about you know ninety to ninety five percent of the money sitting in in cash. How yeah. do you, in a world with zero interest rates and as you mentioned in some countries even negative interest rates, in a world where there is doubts about the safety of the banking system still, I guess. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether you have the problem right now or not, uh, but how are you going to handle that issue that's called just, the cash portion of of an investor's uh, account or fund. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we have managed accounts, if you have a fund, it's a secret. Uh, sure. You know, it, you're not exposed to the risk of MF Global kind of cases. Um, but what we have to make sure that you you deal with um, brokers where you have the managed account, which have very solid financial power. But have you thought, yeah, that's one thing that's that to me, that's more about where you put the margin and how yeah. you do that. And actually, yeah. I learned quite a lot from our uh, from from the uh, sponsors of, of our podcast yeah. today, uh, the Eurex Exchange, because they actually educated me when I saw them uh, last month. Uh, that there are some new rules now where essentially you can get much more safety for your clients uh, of the positions that you have if, one, you're clearing a European counterpart and, two, for the markets that you trade on European exchanges. So there are new things happening. But actually, I was more interested in the non-trading margin, so to speak. If you have 90% of a fund and it's yeah. sitting in cash, you probably unlikely would have have that sitting at the at the uh, at the broker. You want you need to do something else yeah. with them. And I was just thinking, uh, or I was curious whether you have thought about what you would do in, in an instance like that. Because when I hear about your strategy, it, it reminds me again of other short-term strategies yeah. where 
the most efficient vehicle for you really would be to get as many investors as possible investing through to you via a fund where you, yeah. even though you say you can manage 100 accounts, I understand that, yeah. but actually just the way you trade and, 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 and sort of the frequency, it, it could mean at least that having a fund vehicle at some stage would, would be um, relevant. So I was just curious to know whether you thought about, you know, how to manage the, the other part of the portfolio, the cash in the current uh, yeah, environment. I talked to, to, to some of our investors if they would like to have this portion invested in some you know, money market type of uh, securities to at least get a minimal return. But most of them said, okay, we are fine with it sitting in cash because we we are interested in, uh, we give you a hundred. Uh, we, we care about what, what happens to the hundred and where do we stand at the end of year one, year two, year three. Sure. But I agree with you, long term, it's definitely on our target list. We would like to raise a fund in the long term. Sure, okay. Um, and this uh, this problem you mentioned, it, it's a realistic one. It just the problem, if you want to make too much return on this 90%, probably you have to take some risk. So then it's a question of uh, do you really, how much risk do you want to take on that? 90%. Yeah. And and actually just just to clarify, I wasn't even thinking about making a return on the money. I was just wanting to make sure you could keep them safe. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. uh, having having money in the banking system today, yeah. it, at least in my mind, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that your money is safe. But anyway, that's a different discussion. Yeah. Uh, just a, uh, one more question on, on on sort of the business side of things. You've chosen to be setting your company up outside the financial centers, if I could put it that way. Yeah. Um, how do you think that affects you? I mean, um, does it make it harder for you to um, to get people to stop by the office, uh, vice versa? Is it better for you? Is it more creative, calm environment to be removed from from the noise of uh, London or Wall Street? Um, how how do you phrase uh, that? And and why did you decide to to uh, set up your company um, where you did? Um, basically, for me, I find the Swiss financial um, uh, yeah, regulation quite attractive. So we we wanted to set up in Switzerland. As I'm German, for me, it was easier to do sure. it in the German-speaking uh, part than in uh, the French-speaking part where I used to live before. Um, and for us, it was more important. I think nowadays we live in a global, uh, the financial markets are globally. I, I travel a lot. So I'm in London roughly once a month in New York three, four times a year. Uh, I'm also teaching in Hong Kong. So anyhow, I, I can combine it a bit with um, also investing, um, meeting some investors there. So of course, you need to meet those investors in, per in person. But where you do your research, most of them, they don't really, uh, the investors don't really care. You know, for them, we are like, okay, we are in a village outside of, of Zurich. Zurich is considered uh, as a financial hub. Uh, I think you have quite a few CTAs and family offices uh, um, in that area. You have Man Group and Fefficon and so on. So they are, it, it's not that we are totally remotely mm -hmm. uh, somewhere. So yeah, yes, I agree. We are not like in the center of London or in the center of New York, but we are also not totally uh, away from the uh, financial centers. Absolutely. Now, before we go to the last section, I wanted to yeah. ask you a question that... I think is relevant, certainly, I mean, if probably for, yeah. for, for, for all managers, but I, I can imagine for, for a group like yours where you're going out and, and having to do a lot of 
due diligence meetings or due diligence phone calls and you get all these questions uh, uh, all the time. What do you find that investors, uh, when it, maybe because of your sort of slightly unique strategy uh, for sure, but, but what are the questions that investors should be asking you? What should they really dive into, which they may not be diving into today uh, when they talk to you about your strategy? I mean, as an investor, I think what's more and more important is the regulation and the infrastructure um, requirements. So if you if you look at classical DDQs, you now have a lot of questions. Okay, how how many? Um, you have the key man risk. You have um, this kind of stuff. Then you have okay, what happens if your computers break down? How are you hedged against this kind of um, um, your yeah, risk because I think most investors they understand that yeah there there will be months or pe- time periods where you just believe the market goes up but it goes down. Mm. I mean that's life. It just uh, basically eliminating all the other blow up risks. If by uh, offering managed accounts as we do, um, investors are pretty safe that you know we cannot run away uh, with the money or do a Madoff kind of case. And I sure. think since Madoff we really see. Uh, we have seen a huge increase in the demand for managed accounts. Um, also, if you have a fund, you know, you cannot do it uh, anymore, a uh, very cheap structure with a not unknown uh, auditor and so on. So nowadays you need to have one of the big four. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what really people uh, are focusing on because this is the risk they can, I mean, basically it's their career risk as an investor. If you say, okay, we go with these uh, small guys from Evolutic and then in two years there would be some huge issue because we wouldn't have a proper backup structure, then it would be their career risk. If if just the performance uh, doesn't go according to expectations, they can pull the plug. Let's jump to the last section as mentioned, and this is sort of more, I call it general and fun. So it's a little yeah. bit, uh, uh, you know, all over the place, really. Um, yeah. So I wanted to start by asking you, I mean, as a a new manager, but again, as an experienced entrepreneur, what advice would you give to other new managers or aspiring managers? What what has really been the key takeaway of, 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 of your learning Uh, starting out in 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 the sort of the systematic uh, trading space. Yeah, I think one shouldn't underestimate the um, the time you need to spend to get the infrastructure and regulation right mm. because it's this is a, a, a key point and I think now with all this new regulation it's becoming more and more uh, important. It's a, clearly a red flag for any investor if you do not fulfill the highest standards in the in these fields and therefore I would really recommend everyone to to um, focus and uh, inform yourself about these kind of areas um, before you start um, your own man- uh, asset management firm. Sure. And when you uh, sort of in, in, in leading up to this, I don't know if there was uh, one or, or maybe a number of firms that you looked at and, and, and that inspired you and you aspired to get to where they are today are there any firms out there where you said yeah i mean this is this is such a great story and they're such a great firm that 
you know, if I one day could be something along, you know, along those lines, I would be very happy, very proud. So I, I know a, a couple of people at Winton and at uh, Man Group. And I think those are really like excellent uh, places. They have, because they've managed to create this awesome research environment, but still have a very um, profitable business. And I would like to, uh, to do something similar because if you want to hire intelligent PhD guys, you have to, you have to make it a nice place for them to work so that they can really focus on the uh, research. And by focusing on the research, this should improve your performance. Yeah, those are certainly some, some great names you mentioned there. Now you've studied a lot. You've read a lot of books. Is there any particular book, maybe two, that if you look at purely from a trading point of view, that you would recommend other people to study and maybe not something that is too deep into levy processes because yeah. I think that is a little bit unique. Uh, but are there any trading books that you've come across uh, that that um, that you felt was really good? Yeah, what I recommend in uh, in my in my class and also the, the sources are at the end of uh, all of the different slides. I think if I would have to choose two books, one is from Vince. The Mathematics of Money Management and uh, Risk Analysis Techniques for Traders, mm -hmm. which is very important, um, which I found very useful for um, the question of how do you size your positions. Okay. And then from a guy um, named uh, Chan, Algorithmic Trading, uh, Winning Strategies and the Rational, where he also, he has a second book where he basically really tells you how to build your algorithmic uh, trading um, firm. Those two I found very useful. Okay. And in terms of other books, just in general, I'm a little bit curious. Um, other books that you've read that may have impacted you as a, as, as a, as a person, uh, if it's a little bit outside uh, sort of the trading uh, space, is there any? Um, my favorite author is Jacques Bazoun. He was a French uh, intellectual and he, he writes a lot of very interesting uh, books. I also, I really like to read about uh, history because I find that you can learn a, a lot about it. So another very good book is 500 Years of Western European Culture. Okay. And um, it's one of those books where basically every every page you can learn a lot of new stuff. Sure, sure. sure. Um, now, I think it's clear for everyone who's listened to our conversation today that you've been uh, starting a few uh, businesses along the way. And as an entrepreneur, if we just take that hat on, what's been the biggest failure so far in doing that? And, and what did you learn from it? Uh, the biggest failure so far, I mean, all the companies are, are going okay, but sometimes it took longer to, I mean, basically the revenue and until the revenue came in. Sure. But I think it, if you have a good business model, you need to have the endurance to really go through negative periods and always come back, always stand up again and really continue to improve your business model until it finally uh, comes into place. Sure. Now, Oliver, I'm not entirely sure how old you are. So I, I, I'm going to have to ask you whether, whether you have children. No, I don't have okay. children. Okay, so I'm going to rephrase my question yeah. and say, when you do have children, if you do yeah. have children, yeah. if you could take just one of your skills that you have today and you could pass it on to your child. What would that be and, and why? 
I think it's being honest to other people and uh, being curious. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you are curious, you will find something. What's your passion? And for me, that's really something nice. What what I have achieved with Evolutic. It's basically, my I, I did the PhD out of passion for that subject, and now out of passion for that subject, I'm we are creating an investment management firm out of it. Yeah, which is something really great if you can follow your passion because then it doesn't feel like working. <laughs> No, absolutely. That's true. What about a fun fact, uh, Oliver? Can you share a fun fact about yourself? Something that even the people who know you, could be your colleagues, could be your family, may not know about you. They, they more than they know that I'm pretty clumsy, so I'm unable to fix the IKEA, <laughs> IKEA shelf or to cook. So I'm really uh, <laughs> as a cliche <laughs> a mathematician guy. Right. Um, yeah. So the, the the nerd the the nerd yeah, does the nerd uh, factor yeah. the nerd factor does actually exist. Okay, excellent. And uh, now I said earlier and asked you earlier about what investors should be asking you when they talk to you, and and I don't want to sort of uh, uh, you know I want to make sure that 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 I've done you justice as well. So is there anything that you can think of as we are wrapping up that I've missed uh, in our conversation today? Something that you want to bring up uh, towards the end here? No, I think it um, it was very interesting for me. Thank you very much um, for your time. Uh, I can just summarize again. I think we have um, a couple of USPs compared to other CTAs. We are we have a, a, a group of a team, a very well educated team. We have this unique focus on Sotino ratios. We have this unique academic approach of applying levy processes in through ensemble methods, and then also we have the USP that we, at least we believe that we know how to run a company. <laughs> Absolutely. And as we wrap up, I do want to just mention one thing, and that is to thank our sponsor, the Eurex Exchange, for uh, sponsoring today's episode. And as many of the listeners know, of course, is that the Eurex Exchange is the place where you can go and hedge your portfolio risk. But before we finish, um, I want to ask you, Oliver, if you can share Where's the best place for listeners who uh, want to reach out to you and get to know more about your firm? Where's the best place to go? Um, I think it's easiest to go uh, through our website evolutic.com and there you have the, you know, you can send me an email, give me a call, you have all the contact details over there. And um, yeah, I would be happy to to share my experience with interested um, uh, people who, who are listening to this podcast. Absolutely. I mean, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate that you have introduced us to your class of algorithmic trading. That was great. Uh, the transparency and, and, and the willingness from your side to to uh, share your views on your strategy and your firm. I also really appreciate that. And of course, as uh, most people know, uh, all the details of today's conversation can be found in the show notes for this episode on toptradersonplug.com so i hope we can connect at a later stage oliver and 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 find out how things are progressing and in the meantime i wish you and your colleagues all the best thank you very much uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you Niels. absolutely thank likewise you. thank you you too take thank care you. Bye. bye thanks for listening to top traders unplugged If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.